0: Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists, for artists, where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Yain, the producer with our host, Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind. Hello,
1: everybody. Welcome to the Art Grind podcast. I'm Marshall Jones here with my co host, Dina Brodsky. And today we are so happy to have a galleryist, uh, Lou Mizell, on the show. And Lou's been a legend in the art world for a long time. I've known about his gallery, seen many shows there. And Lou, I want to kind of clear something up. Did, would you say you sort of invented the idea of photorealism, sort of the term?
2: Well, okay, I didn't invent the idea, but I did invent the word. Okay. All through art history, all through mankind's history, the artist had a job. And that job was to record faces, places, and things, portraits to life and landscape, religion, and everything else that was going on, which they did. In the middle of the 1800s, a camera was invented. I have a joke now that, maybe a joke, maybe it's real, but in about 1875, there were a bunch of French artists sitting around in a cafe in Paris, um, Monet, Manet, uh, Cezanne, uh, the rest of them, and... Uh, one of them, Renoir, one of them said to the others, hey, there's cameras here. We don't have to do that anymore. And from that point on, with Impressionist, Post-Impressionist, going on into the 20th century, artists started finding ways to break away from painting realism and recording faces, places, and things. Uh, you went into, you know, Picasso, Lea and Brock in the early, in the 19. 19- 19s doing their, you know, what they were doing, and then you had the surrealists. Um, but without going into all the details, by the 1950s, artists had completely eliminated realism totally from what they were doing. For one thing, it was a lot easier, you just went out there and expressed yourselves, and it was called abstract expressionism. And that's when I came to it in 1956, I was 14. A friend of mine said, let's go to the Museum of Modern Art for your birthday. I said, what's that? I was trained as a classical pianist. I went to concerts on weekends. I said, what's that? Anyway, we went to the Museum of Modern Art, and believe me, it was an astounding thing, and there was Pollock and Klein and de Kooning and Motherwell and all the rest of them. I was very taken with it and kind of walked away from the music, and by the time I was 18, my friend Larry and I had found the Cedar bar in New York and that's where the abstract expressionists were hanging out. And we were very much involved in the art world from that point on. Now people say on photorealism and everything else. However, I had to do what I had to do. I was 14, I was 20 and I met these artists. Um, in 1962-3, I got to be friends with Theodoro Stamos. Um, ultimately, I represented him until he died. Um, it was like I worked for him and Mark Rothko and Francis Klein. Unfortunately, Klein died very early. Um, and I had a lot of good times. But because of my relationship with the abstract expressionist, I was a little bit late to pop art because these rough and tumble, rough guys, beer drinking, whatever, didn't kind of like the pop artists who were a different kind of personality and into drugs and everything else. Plus, they were going against everything. But there was a link, and the link was Larry Rivers, Jasper Johns, and Robert Rauschenberg. And these three artists started bringing imagery back into painting. They were abstract painters, but they were bringing imagery back, and they were the link to the pop artists. So I told you my relationship with Stamos, and I ended up representing him. In the pop artists, I got to be friendly with Warhol, Lichtenstein, very close with Wesselman, and very, very close with Mel Ramos, and I represented him until he died. But this time now I was 20, and now we're into the 70s, 60s, and there is a 100 artists, will say, they were called the new realists. Uh, because of what happened with pop and what was going on, artists had a new license. They said, oh, we can't paint realism again. Unfortunately, many of them were just harking back to or derivative of what had come before. A little bit looser, a little bit more maybe expressionistic, but you had Perlstein and Bruder and Tillem, and then there was Malcolm Morley. Malcolm Morley was a late late pop artist. It's funny, I just found something this morning, so I'll just get to show you, because Malcolm Morley was one of the first, and uh, this is Portrait of Me by Malcolm Orley.
1: Oh, no way. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Look at that handsome guy. Oh, my anyway, goodness. That's
2: funny. <laughs> I mean, I just ran across it this morning. So anyway, I met Malcolm Orley. And for a year, he was making the boat paintings, the ship painting, doing them from postcards. Anyway, jumping ahead without going to the whole lecture. By the end of the day, I found Chuck Close, or Flack, Richard Estes. Ralph Goings, Bechtel, and all these artists were actually painting realism in a way that had never been painted before. They were using imagery and subject matter in a way that wasn't used before. Estes went out and painted storefronts uh, on the avenues in New York. Goings focused on pickup trucks, um, which was a beautiful object for him. McLean painted horses, Kleeman painted race cars, and so on and so forth. So. I found a bunch of these artists, and about that time, I met a man named Bradford Bubist. And uh, in the back behind me on a wall is a Bradford Bubis painting, which we won't get into, but uh, I rep- he had a gallery on, 59- on 79th and Madison, and he convinced me to take it over and represent him. And the gallery was very small, but it was on 79th and Madison. So I did that. And I had a show with half a dozen of these artists that eventually became or are the photorealists. One of the art critics came in who was a good friend of mine. And he said, Lou, this stuff is great, but the art world's going to hate it. They're not going to like what you're doing. They're going to tell you this and that and everything else. But I think it's great. What do you call these artists? So I said, well, first of all, they're using the camera and the photograph to gather information. And by the way, ever since the camera was invented, artists did that all through history. All of the great artists, but they denied it. It was against the law. It was against the rules. It was cheating. But anyway, these artists were making a point that we aren't using the camera. It's, it's great. This is how we gather information. What's the word? Photographic. Photo. photo. I said, I don't know, photorealism? Photorealistic, photorealism. And that weekend... He wrote an article, I think it might have been in the Village Voice, I'm still trying to figure out where it was, and it said, My Gallery is showing photorealism. So that was the first time it was in print. Six months later, Jim Monty, who was the curator at the Whitney Museum, did a show called 22 Realists. And those 22 Realists included a lot of the new realists, the names I had mentioned, but also half a dozen of the artists that are the photorealists. And in putting this together, he had discussions with me, and we discussed that word. And he used the word in the Whitney catalog, 1971 show. So those are the two things. Historically, that's where it began. Um, So that's how the photorealism thing came. Okay, my background and my interest is in all good fine art and I've been through 50 years of wonderful periods of abstract and pop and real and even going into the 80s uh, even Julian Schnabel and Eric Fischel um, after the photorealists, it seemed that most artists went back to imagery um, the art world kind of split um, minimal went into environmental and all sorts of stuff went off to one way and the realists went off another way and seemed to influence so that whether you have Basquiat or you have cause or you have almost any artist today, there's imagery. It's not abstract, but there are abstract artists painting today. Unfortunately to me, they're totally derivative and not worth very much, but that's my opinion. Okay, so that brings us up to the with the photorealism. In 1972, uh, a very important lawyer um, asked me to assemble a collection for him uh, without going into the deep on it. He was an aviation attorney and he wanted me to get him uh, a collection of airplane paintings. And I said, no, I don't do that. The the movement that's working now is photorealism and each of these artists is very important. And they would be very happy to make a commission and be aware that you're interested in aviation, but they're not painting airplanes. Well, he was very smart and he agreed. Uh, And like, for instance, Richard Estes painted the Alitalia storefront on Fifth Avenue. It was no different from anything else he did. And there was a model airplane in the window. And Ralph Goings realized that a lot of Texas people had pickup trucks and little airplanes. And he had a, a, a barn, and there was the pickup truck. And in the background was an airplane. And Bechtel was painting Chevys and cars against railings and parking lots. And off in the distance, you could see a bit of a helicopter. Uh, and so on and so forth. Aubrey Flack was painting conglomerations of objects. And she painted uh, all these airplane boxes and, uh, of, of toys, airplanes. So I built that collection. And I said, I will do it. I will do it for a very small commission. I wanna tell the artists that they're gonna get paid more than any painting they ever got before. So I wanna jump ahead all on the waiting list. I want them in 1973. And once the collection is going, I want you to cover it so it can go to 25 museums over a period of five years. So it opened at my gallery, and then it went to the Herbert of Johnson at Cornell University. And the Herbert of Johnson Museum is a real beautiful IMP building. And it opened with the Spiser Collection. And then the collection traveled, we'll skip ahead. In 1978, when the touring was over, and he became known as a, the new Medici, and he was being lauded in all sorts of areas, and he was running around with the Fords and the Rockefellers and the Mellon, and he was very happy, man, because I had gotten him into that. What am I going to do? I said, I wanted to give it to the Smithsonian. So he gave the 25 paintings to the Smithsonian. Interestingly enough, that year, the most attended museum in the world opened, the National Air and Space Museum on the Mall in Washington. So they decided that since they had an art gallery, they would open the National Air and Space Museum with the Spicer collection. And that happened, and it's there. So that was and and going through the seventies with all those museum shows and the fact that the Europeans picked up on this really quickly, particularly the French and the Italians. And and interestingly, by the way, I did a show with a Brussels gallery called Izzy Braschow, who was a fourth fourth generation um, um, Surrealist dealer. Uh, He represented all the great surrealists, his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather. And he said, Lewis, we can't use the word photorealism in Europe because it doesn't mean anything to people. Can I call it hyperrealism? And that's another word that you hear a lot. And that's where the word hyperrealism came in. And it's sort of synonymous with, but it's not the same word, but hyperrealism. The Italians called it iperrealisti, And the French called it hyperrealism. And it went on. So, from that point on, I've done over 300 museum shows. Anytime anybody's interested in doing a show with realism, they can call, they want to borrow a painting, they want advice before you know it. I'm helping them do the whole show in 1980. I put out my book Photorealism, which you must know in 1990 it was the second one, and the millennium was the third one, and finally, at the digital age was ten years ago uh, and those four books document about 5,000 paintings, which is about 95% of what has been done by all the artists over 50 years. It's an amazing undertaking, but they don't do a lot of work. Okay, now here's the problem. First of all, in the gallery today, came in last week, I have a painting by Bergren Maniel, and it's a picture of Las Vegas. And I'm going to state categorically that no painting in world history Anywhere in the world, any time in the world, including today, has more information and detail than that painting. It is beyond astounding. And today, came in from Italy, a painting by Raffaella Spence, who is the only woman, career-oriented woman in photorealism. And it's of Rome, and it's got the same fantastic detail and feeling and sensitivity. And then there's an artist in Texas who I'm doing a book on now. His name is Rod Penner. So Penner and Meniel and, uh, um, and Spence are the leading artists doing that today. And they're doing it because they have really high power digital cameras. They're using computers. They're using all sorts of material that no artist had before. So you go back. Richard Essie's had a 36 millimeter camera. And he would take... 24 or 36 shots but he didn't want to waste more money than that and that was it and then he'd go home with the slides and he'd project them and he'd do whatever he did and if you look at Richard as he's up close they're abstract paintings but if you look at them across the room they're the same detail and magnificence as what's going on today and what's disappointing now is that because these artists do one two maybe three paintings a year they, there is no interest in the herd, and the herd are the people that are guided by the advisors and the consultants that are paid for by the mega galleries with ten and fifteen locations and three hundred employees uh, who have artists that have factories producing hundreds of paintings a month, like Damien Hirst's spin paintings, for instance. And people go out and spend a million dollars on a spill pet spin painting. They're told it's an investment. That's bullshit. They're told that it's status and prestige. It's a joke, um, but it's, that's what's going on now. And there is no attention being paid to the artists that spend lots of time, that have the discipline and the abilities and the skills and the love to do what they do. And you're talking about artists in today doing what they love. Nowadays, they just pick up, I don't know if it's brushes and paint or if it's garbage off the street, whatever it is. They're doing something that they'll say, oh, that wasn't done before, and maybe some gallery will pick them up. And if you can produce enough for them, they're going to make something for you. And by the way, I have two problems. Photorealism is one of them. I've been doing just fine. I've been having a wonderful life. I'm doing everything I'm doing for the fun of it. Um, I'm still... Selling all my artist work. I only have one, two or three a year. But back in the 80s, actually the late 70s, I started collecting and focusing on a very specific part of American illustration. Now we all know about uh, Lion Decker and NC Wyatt and, uh, you know, all of the rest of them, uh, but I'm, I'm dealing with the pinups. And the pinups were about 10% of illustration, but they were the most popular illustration that was ever done. And they were doing it in the 40s and 50s into the 60s while American realism was gone. It was the only place where American realism was carrying on. So I've written a book on that subject too. Uh, The Great American Pinup has 900 paintings by 72 artists, and it's the document. But again, the, the art world laughs at it, And while it hit real high levels about 10 or 15 years ago with paintings going for half a million dollars, today, you know, people are sneered at if you like pinups. They're sneered at if you want to collect nudes. John DeAndrea, uh, Robert Graham, I have the best collection in the world of Robert Graham bronze sculptures. Oh, you know, people are afraid to have nudes in their house. You know, uh, other people will cancel them and laugh at them and tell them they're misogynist. It's a totally different world. And here I am talking, my brain's out. I'm going to stop for a minute.
1: So first off, my head is spinning with how much you've seen. You're, in New York, particularly, you've probably seen the most changes in the art world. We can't foresee the future but certainly in the past from abstract expressionism all the way up to hyper realism it's it's almost monumental how things were changing each generation just boom 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 something brand new what what do you think because um a lot of our listeners are painters what unifies they're both paintings But from an abstract expressionist painting, like um, I don't know a a de Kooning or something, to a Richard Estes, what is the feeling that they both that would unify them besides just paint on canvas? You know.
2: You finally ask me a question. I don't think I can answer. (laughs) I I really don't know how I can combine what de Kooning has with Estes. And by the way, Estes is a very much kept-to-himself artist. Most of the photorealists weren't out there socializing. None of them were smokers or drinkers. None of them did drugs. They all stayed married. There were no divorces. Um, There was nothing uh, crazy about their social life. Uh, The abstract expressionists, we all know all about that. Um, Richard Estes, I had dinner with him at my house in Miami last Friday night. Wait, maybe two Friday nights. Well, I can't remember. Anyway, last, about... About a week ago, Richard and Davis Cohn came over to dinner. Richard is 90 and he, um, he, he looks just like he did 20 years ago and he's still painting. Uh, Audrey Flack is 90 and she's still painting. Um, but there's no way. Audrey Flack was painting abstract expressionist paintings in the early 50s before most of the women that went on to have names uh, and then after the 50s, she went on to painting uh, a new realism kind of thing. And then in the 70s, she did the photorealism, which were the still lives. And then in the 2000 and uh, in the uh, the, the, in the 80s, 1980s, she went into sculpture uh, and now she's back to painting again. But so Audrey's been through an awful lot of stuff. And she just keeps coming up with ideas and loving every bit of it. And I have, I could, you know, I have pictures of her dancing around at 90, stepping up two steps on a stool, getting up and painting. Um, Richard Estes, he doesn't even like to be in a place with more than two or three other people. Uh, he's not into communication. He's not into studying and knowing about art history and doesn't care. He does his own thing. So there's no way that I can make any kind of comparison about the motivations for Richard Estes and de Kooning. They're totally different worlds, different things.
3: I think Marshall is looking for the qualities that attracted you to both de Kooning and Richard Estes. There's a reason you like what you like. Oh,
2: well, to tell you the truth, de Kooning was not one of my favorites. My favorites were Klein, Rothko, Stamos. Um, um, At the time, those were the three that were most interesting to me um the Kooning was much more expressionist than they were they were much more organized with what they you know what you you know what I'm talking about so the Kooning was not one of my favorites but uh i, I mean and i ne- and i met him uh, a bunch of times over the years but i never really communicated with him i never really got to know him like i did with many of the others as i got older it was easier sitting around in a bar talking but uh You know, and then there was Larry Rivers. And since I mentioned Larry Rivers, uh, this year, there's a movie coming out called Bad Boy of the Art World, Larry Rivers. And I am the executive producer.
1: Oh, really? And it's
2: going to be very, yeah, it's going to be very controversial. Mm. um the guy that's doing the movie has done a hundred documentaries mostly on classical music and all sorts of things and he had all sorts of people backing him you know fifty a hundred thousand dollars to do the movies but with the rivers he said nobody wants to touch it i said i'm not afraid of anything Mm. and if i uh, uh when we're finished i may send you a link to it but it starts off with larry walking on the avenue huh
1: I'd love to see it. I, I like his painting so much.
2: Starts off with him walking on the avenue, semi nude, in a gay parade, telling these guys that are holding on to each other. He says, I used to be gay. He says, but I eventually gave it up. And they're talking and talking. Um, he's playing with a band and he's playing the saxophone. And he looks around at all the guys. He says, You know what? I wish I was born a Negro. You guys are great. You know, but then there's all sorts of stuff like him photographing his daughter's breasts from the age of eight to 18, showing their development. <laughs> Can you imagine that today?
3: Yeah, but, yeah by the way, Lou, this, this movie might end up being a problem. Just, <laughs> just saying.
2: <laughs> anyway, so I have no fears. And I'm the executive producer. And I will send you the link when this is over with um, Then you can share it. But uh, we missed it. It was supposed to come out two years ago and go to the film festivals, which is what's supposedly going to happen this year, is how you get these things started. But as I say, it's going to be very controversial, and we'll see what happens. But it's real, and it's all film that was taken back in the 50s and 60s, you know, and it's there, and it's real, and it's part of history.
1: What was the, it was the energy like back then you hear about, well, you talked about the Cedar, uh, the Cedar Tavern or the Cedar Club, like all these great artists meeting in a bar. It was quite contentious. As I understand, it was a lot of energy. And how has New York changed in your opinion? Because I've been painting here for the last 20 years and I've never been to a place like I hear the Cedar bar existed, you know, it's very did you ever,
2: did you ever get? The, did you ever get to the Max's Kansas City?
1: No, I never got there either. I know them well from like Velvet Underground recordings and stuff, but I, I never went there either.
2: I mean, there were a lot of places. And with the abstract expressionists, there were arguments. There were discussions. Um, there were debates. I don't know if I actually saw anybody hitting anybody. But it was always very interesting, and and when I was eighteen, uh, and I had to be, fr- I got to be friends with Stamos, who was the youngest. I was just happy to be there with him, and when you know they were there, and I could just listen and watch. Um, then later on, Max's Kansas City came. It was up on Park Avenue and Seventeenth Street, I think it was. Um, there were just a lot of those bars, and with the pop artists that came along, it quieted down. And it was more about drugs instead of, the, instead of uh, you know, alcohol and whatever. And a lot of people getting high and stoned out like on drugs and stuff like that. But <clears throat> I just kind of look back and it's just part of a history. And it was all fun. It's not like that anywhere today. Artists aren't meeting anyplace. Artists aren't getting together. Artists aren't doing things together. It's all a business and it's a business, and it's mostly a phony business, and, and it's a lot of, lot of trash being put out there, and, and it's very unfortunate. And it's been that way for 20 years, and it's getting worse. That's my opinion, and I've been through it all, so.
3: You actually mentioned Damien Hurst, who's probably one of my least favorite artists of all time. I think he's probably an amazing businessman, and so factory made paintings of his are just unbelievably visually bland. But I guess you you mentioned that you kind of think that the power and prestige that are associated with with it are bullshit. I actually disagree, right? Because other than that, there's there's nothing there, right? But power and prestige are all, it's like smoke and mirrors, right? It's just a shadow on on a wall. But who's making the smoke and mirrors? Like someone has decided that there's power and prestige in this. Who do you think those decision makers are? Because I don't think it's random. I don't think it's, you know, I don't think he's a random person that became famous for making schlock. I think there's a conscious decision made somewhere that this is the kind of art that, you know, will be sold for a lot of money, written about respectfully, et cetera. Where do you think those decisions are made?
2: You know, all sorts of things happen. And there's a whole long history of how things happen. There was a man named Charles Saatchi. Does that name mean anything to you? one of the most amazing, largest collectors in the world. And in 1972 or three, he came into my gallery and he started his collecting with a Ralph Goings pickup truck, which he bought from me. He then went on, he was a young guy, 30 years at the time, and he built up a collection of the best photorealism in Britain, at least. And he went and he offered it to the Tate. And they said, oh no, we're not interested in that. They didn't say that's not art, but they said, no, no, we're not interested in that. And he sold it all. And then he collected from Holly Solomon something called pattern and decoration. And built a collection and went to the Tate. And they said, oh no, we're not interested in that. And he sold it. And then in the 80s, he bought eight uh eight, Jesus Christ, just a second. Julius novels. Remember the plate paintings and those things? You know, Julian Schnabel. And went to the Tate and they said, oh, yeah, we want to do that. Now, Schnabel, for some reason or other, that has started to work, pick up. Mary Boone was new. She was sleeping with Leo Castelli. They had gallery in the same floor. They were playing a game together. Castelli supported her. She was showing that. Um, the real best artist that she had was Eric Fischel, who still is. Um, of course, her career kind of ended. Uh, we know about that. But anyway, it started with the Tate and that a show and Charles Saatchi, and all of a sudden, he now became known as a major collector. And then he got involved with Larry Gagosian and Hauser and Wirth and those big galleries, and they decided which artist they were going to present. Of course, it had to be an artist that could produce factory-produced work. They didn't want one, two, or three paintings a year. Uh, uh, yeah, a year. They wanted a lot of work. And uh, Hearst was able to produce all sorts of stuff. Uh, the spin paintings is just one of them. The dot paintings, which you're familiar with, he had 100 people, and they would come to him. There was a basic concept of the dot paintings, and they would come with variations, and he say, yeah, do it. And they make dot paintings and they spin paintings. Well, he did some things early on. The shark was really interesting. And a lot of those big heavyweight things, which weren't really sellable, although nowadays people will pay gazillions for them. But he went on to produce massive amounts. And all these galleries have artists that are able to do that. And they have the power to produce, you know, shows all over the world and sell the work. And the the brain dead public art collectors. I'm a collector. I have a hundred different collections. And most of what I collect, nobody else in the world collects. Absolutely. I mean, one collection that I have, I have a picture of every woman that ever appeared in a Miss America pageant. And it took me 40 years. Because each year they had this big, wide thing, like when high school graduation, here were all the 50 women, right? Uh, so I have the best collection of that in the world. I have Clarice Clip, English Deco Pottery. I rediscovered her in the 70s. She was great, one of the only British uh, uh, art deco artists. And in the 70s, my wife and I rediscovered her. And by the end of the 70s, we revitalized her career. And we wrote the book on her. And we had the best collection and sold thousands of them. No one else was doing that. That's what collecting is about. Not doing what the other 150 or 200 millionaires are doing out there. And unfortunately, that's what happens. And these people that are buying these things from these big galleries, they have no taste. They have no understanding. They're just being told, this is the thing you should be buying. And I'm telling you, when they have them in their house, I doubt that they look at them. They're there on the walls. They don't look. My loft is filled. Dina, you've seen my place. But it's filled from gill to gill, and I look at everything every day. And I enjoy looking at it. There aren't any people like I am anymore. Strength.
1: Would you say that there's a unifying quality to the things you enjoy looking at, if you could put your finger on it, because your interests are so varied and you've experienced so many things. Is there a, like a quality in an artist that you particularly admire in their work? Well,
2: number one, there is something that we call beauty and beauty is a word you're not supposed to use, but it's got to be beautiful. It's got to look at it and you got to say, that is beautiful. I really like looking at that. Um, then there's got to be skills and there's got to be abilities and there's got to be subject matter and there's got to be innovational ideas as to how they actually do it or how they actually uh, make it work. In um, other things than that, but with the Miss America pageants, they were just beautiful things. I mean, here they were, 50 girls, every every year for 1923 on. Um, the Clarice Cliff English Deco is really garish. It's not like the French Deco or the Italian Deco, but it's really beautiful. Um, let me see if I have. I don't think I have the catalog here to show you. Does that word mean anything to you, Clarice Cliff? I don't know. Uh, no, okay, uh, I don't seem to think I have the catalog yet. But anyway, so we looked at it, we said, that's beautiful, look at that. And the shapes and the designs and everything else, and we started searching it out. And then we went to England and we started finding dealers who would search the countryside for what was made back before World War II, uh, because in at the end of 1938, all those kind of the factories that were making these things went to, to making wartime, you know, materials. And that was the end of Claris Clip. So that was one thing. Um, then, then there were deco statues, um, priests, chaparrus, um, the comps, we have a lot of those and we still have them. And then there were things made in the forties, which were modern, um Walter Darwin tea cameras uh irons and objects and things uh I had a big collection of Aladdin's lamps um the best one being a Tiffany and none of them had a, a none of them had a uh a a, a a genie <laughs> Too no? bad. that's a funny joke I'll tell you a quick joke this couple <laughs> was playing golf and a woman tees off and she hooks Uh, slices and it goes 100 yards and it goes into somebody's backyard and all of a sudden they hear breaking glass and they go up and they look through the hedge and there's this broken window and there's this gigantic vase broken and laying down oh no what are we going to do so they go around to the front door and they admit it and this little fat guy with a towel around his waist comes out and says don't worry about it. I'm a genie and I've been in that tank for a thousand years and you just release me. So there's three wishes. You get one, she gets one and I get one. So she wants what she wants, jewelry, this and that. He wants what he wants, a boat. This and, that. and what do you want? He says, I want to spend the afternoon with your wife in my bed. So they look at each other and the guy says, okay. And they go up in the bed and they spend uh, two hours and everything else. And when it's over with, he looks at her He says, how old are you? She says, 35. He says, you still believe in genies? <laughs> and you still, <laughs> still believe in genies anyway. So everything leads to a joke. You know, um, I have Australian architects works. Uh, Tiffany Glass was one of the first collections I had. Um, and then there were things that I did try to collect. And other people were collecting a lot. I said, yeah, let them do it. I'll I'll do my own thing. But the idea was to find something that had historic, aesthetic uh, skills and ability values uh, that look good, that you enjoy looking at and searching for. There had to be enough so you could find more than one a year, but you couldn't find thousands a year. You didn't want them flooded. So you also had a, there were all sorts of, um rules and regulations in collecting that we came up with that's what it's about
3: um actually was the last time i saw you um it was actually to take a look at your collection of beech trees beech trees how did that come about you have one of the world's largest beech tree collections uh, and and i know that because okay. i spent like 3 years looking for beech trees to draw and your beech trees are amazing but how, how did you start collecting that
2: okay so as i said i'm a collector um We went out, and finally, my son was born in 1982. In 1984, we said, okay, time to settle down and get a house in the Hamptons instead of, you know, going out there for a week or two whatever. So I bought this house on Wilkes Lane in Sagaponic, and it was part of a 16-acre farm that had been divided into eight building lots. But this house was the only one there in, in, in Sagaponic. At that time, it was the only house, bare, nothing. There was not a blade of grass on the property. So we buy the house, we start to get established. We buy these really cheap chairs and everything else to furnish it. And my wife says, you know, I don't like to see the the foundation. Let's go out and buy some shrubs to cover the foundation. So we start looking and again, I have my way of doing things. I get there's eight nurseries. Mark them up on value, on quantity, on, on uh, quality, on guarantees, on price, whatever. And we end up selecting martyrs. It's the best nursery out there. But when we went to martyrs, I said, holy shit, here were these giant trees sitting in a ball. You could buy a tree. So one thing leads to another. And while she's buying the, uh, the shrubs, and the junipers I said let me talk to Charlie about trees and we started talking and I told him about my collecting he said well let me tell you why number one there are 40 varieties at least of beech trees I have 36 of them right now he said, so there are 40 some odd varieties there's weeping beaches and there's fastigiate, straight up beaches and there's copper beeches and there's golden beaches, and there's green beaches, and there's every kind of beaches, and it would be really nice to try to have a good example of as many of these as possible. I said, that sounds okay to me, and we started. And at this point, we have the best collection of beech trees probably in the country as far as number of different varieties. Um, A lot of them are around my sculpture field. Okay, we bought the last lot on the block, to keep the block from being overwhelmed. Uh, It's the only block where we wouldn't allow any of our neighbors as they came in to put up hedges. I said to everybody, listen, you go in the Hamptons wherever you go and you go down between walls of hedges. It's not nice. I got the sculpture field. It's wide open. Keep your properties open. Everybody said, yeah, that's great. And that's what's happened. And Wilkes Lane is a beautiful street. And then I started putting my sculpture out there. I got about thirty-five. Uh, major sculptures, you've seen them. Um, so there's the sculpture field. That's one collection, and there's the beech tree collection. That's another collection. Uh, we do have other trees. There were some conifers. Uh, there's a you know a few oddball things that were really beautiful, fastigiate oak. But primarily, the collection that we're known for is the beech trees.
1: Lou, how do you think you've stayed in business? We, we sort of joke on this podcast that there, we've interviewed a few gallery owners. And unfortunately, like in the last few years, most of them have gone out of business. How do, you, how do you think that you've managed to stay in this business this long as a New York City gallery owner? I can't imagine a tougher business to navigate.
2: There's only two, maybe three longer than me. Pace Gallery is Arnie Glensher and Paula Cooper. And I never never even thought about it. I was never even, it was never even uh, a question. Every year I sold what I had to sell. I do what I have to do to support my artists. Um, Things have been very good beyond belief. Back in 1987, uh, up until that point, if I'd sell a painting, I would pay the artist. I would make sure there was enough money in the gallery for salaries and rent. And then I would buy art. In 1987, I said to my brother, who's a real estate attorney, I said, you know, I think I want to diversify. I think we should invest in some real estate in the Hamptons. And he agreed. And I focused. And again, it's a collection. I said, what we want to do is commercial properties, retail and commercial on Montauk Highway between Southampton, where the diner was, and Wainscott. And that's what we've done. We now have 10 great properties. I've built, ultimately, four buildings. The the fourth one was finished last year. Uh, Aside from the parish museum, these are the finest and best award-winning architecture in the Hamptons in 30 years. And they're all doing very well. And they're all producing good income streams. So that works. Um, As far as the paintings are concerned, it. I, I, there's not a lot of effort to sell one, two, or three paintings a year by an artist. It's not like I have 100 spin paintings and there's no way to go with them. Um, so that's happening. And also because things are so really nice and controlled and in good shape, artists work, on galleries work on 50%. I could care less, I don't care about whatever it is I know what the artist is going to get and that's what he's going to get and if i have to get down to the bare bottom to get him what he has to get and keep him or her going i'll do it um i have another i have another vocation i represent about 40 classical musicians and i do about 40 concerts a year up until the pandemic carnegie hall lincoln center in the gallery in the loft i'm the classical curator at the uh, music at the parish museum I do eight concerts a year there each um, and it's all pro bono. And as a matter of fact, when I get one of my musicians a job with some orchestra and they tell me they can pay her $3,000, I say, no, let me tell you, let me send you a couple of grand, tell her you're giving her five, you know, and that's what I'm doing. And it's nothing but fun and enjoyment, gratitude to them and them to me. And like like that, I'm opening at the parish on the 29th with this season, and I'm presenting 11 members of Pegasus Orchestra with the Brandenburg Concertos. That's a big one for me out there in Florida. I get involved with the New World Symphony, and I do parties in the loft and the gallery down uh, in the apartment down there. Have 40 people come to dinner, come to a concert. My pianist with their musicians. Uh, for people that they want to support, we're thankful for support. These are all just fun things and they just happened. And there's no ulterior motives other than to do what's right and have fun. And there's nobody out there, I'm sure. I don't like to brag, but I'm bragging. There's nobody out there that is doing and cares the way I do.
3: So, Lou, how did it all begin? What made you go from collecting art on your own and hanging out with abstract expressionists as they're getting into verbal altercations at the bar to running one, probably one of the longest running galleries in New York?
2: Well, I mean, first of all, I didn't collect much. I did. I started with Stamos with one painting for $600, $5 a week back in 1963. But um, I, 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 I started selling for him. Very shortly after that, it was kind of an interesting way that it worked. And then the other artists that I was also working with, and I bring people over, and then behind the gallery back, they'd say, Oh, yeah, you can have that. And here's how much it is. And sometimes I get a drawing, like the one I showed you Malcolm Morley did that for me. It took him about three minutes. Um, interesting story when he did that of me, he also did one of Susan. And she sat down and he sat down in front of her and he said, I am going to draw you with my eyes closed. She said, how are you going to do that? He put his hand out and put his hand right on her left breast. He started feeling and with his hand. He's drawing what he was feeling. Then he moved over here and he was drawing that one. You know, it was fun.
3: (laughs) How (laughs) did you and Susan meet?
2: She was probably 16. And she was going to uh, Barnard School for Girls. Um, my friend Larry and I were going up to the Upper East Side, trying to pick up girls in the 70s, which wasn't easy back then. We'd go to the bars, you know, Max's, Candace, uh, the, 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 all, all the different ones, Tower East and whatever. And uh, without going into the whole thing, Larry was going out with this Ricky. And Ricky's best friend was Susan. and. Larry said, Susan, uh, Ricky's got a girl for you. And I met Susan and we went out a couple of times. And then it was time for their senior prom and they asked us to take them to the senior prom. Here we were college guys with our big Pontiac Monaco convertibles and they were gonna impress all their other girlfriends. So we took them to the senior prom. Um, It was not a particularly good evening because Larry and Ricky were breaking up. But the following day I called Susan and I said, that wasn't so good, but let's go out to dinner or lunch. She said, you know what? You're going into the army. Take care of yourself. Go ahead. And thanks for whatever you did. And I went away. And a year later, I come back and I call her up. turns out to be on her birthday. And I said, hi, it's Lou Meisel. She said, who? I said, Lou Meisel, I took you to your senior prom. She says, oh, I had a skiing accident. I said, what happened? I said, well, I, I really twisted my knee and I have amnesia. I said, how do you have amnesia in your knee? And then she started laughing and we went out. And six months later, we got engaged. And six months later, in 1966, at the Plaza Hotel, we got married. And she was about, oh, six weeks short of 18 at the time, I think.
3: And you've been, and that's been, 50, yeah, you've been together ever since.
2: 56 years as of last week.
3: Wow. Wow. Oh, happy happy anniversary. And I didn't realize that you were in the Army. What took you there?
2: Oh, yeah. Um, Larry, again, my friend Larry, who got me to go to the Museum of Modern Art, whatever, he, he got me in 1963. He said, you should join the National Guard. I said, why? He said, well, there's a lot of talk about everything. They're starting to draft people um, up until now if you're in college. Or if you're married or you're this, you don't get drafted, but there's things happening. He said, you should go in the National Guard. Well, I was a Boy Scout and I was an Explorer Scout. And in college, I was in the Air Force ROTC. And the military was always interesting to me. So I joined the National Guard in New Jersey. And I went away and I did my six months training. uh, And I got out as a... uh, uh, Engineer because it was an engineer battalion, but I never wanted to go to summer school. So the first year, and there's six years, so the first year, I didn't have to go to summer school because I hadn't been in the into the basic. And the second year, I didn't have to go to uh, the uh, the summer camp because I had just gotten out of basic. And now it's the third year, and they said we need volunteers to go to OCS. They said, what's that? Officer Candidate School, you go down to Seagirt, New Jersey, and you do this for a year, the dad, the dad, whatever, every every one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer. And at the end of a year and a half, I got my commission as a lieutenant in the National Guard. And then um, it it kept on going. And actually, when I got my my commission, I switched over to Armour and I was Lieutenant Armour. And that was when Vietnam was going on. But they didn't call up the National Guard tanks because they didn't use tanks in Vietnam. So I never actually had to serve in any kind of duty. And that's it. I finished out my duty as a National Guard. That takes care of the army. So I did everything.
1: How how important is an artist's personality to you that you're going to represent? Like, is it important that you get along with them or are friends, or is it strictly just on the merit of the work?
2: No, well, number one, number one is the work. Number two is the personality of the artist. I have rarely found an artist whose work I liked, who didn't like me for liking the work and have a great personality. Um, And like in the last year, three of the remaining photorealists that for one reason or another made grave errors and went to other galleries instead of to me, when OK, Harris closed and when their gallery closed, they have now abandoned all those other galleries and come to me and we're all one big happy family.
3: What do you think is sort of the future of, because there's more people painting realistically right now than ever before. That doesn't mean they're painting photorealistically. What do you think is happening to sort of the movement that you created?
2: Well, number one, there is a lot of realism. Everything is realism. Everything is representational in one way or another. Um, There are artists that are making uh, realistic imagery that that you wouldn't call really realism. There's a number of black artists that are doing some really interesting work. Uh, There's a couple of women out there, not many, um, but... I look at it at all, but at the, at the age of 80, after 60 years, even if I see somebody and I say, this is terrific, and I can really do something, I don't have the time. It just isn't there for me to do it. So I compliment them. I write them a note. Uh, if they want to come and talk, we have a good time. But, you know, I'm past the point where I can actually do anything for an artist now other than the ones that I have.
3: Is it just that you don't have the energy or that the art world has changed enough where you feel like you can't take on anyone You.
2: It's not that I can't take on the art world. Nobody comes to the galleries anymore. We have a great website. We have great social media. People call up. I sold a painting for $2 million in Spain six months ago online. Uh, a guy in the Czech Republic bought a great big Casari ass for $200,000. Somebody in Dubai bought a Raphael Spence Rome and, and you know, like that. But You don't have openings. Nobody comes to openings. It can't work the way it used to. And I don't know any other way. I mean, it used to have a big party here. Everybody came. They had fun. Most of the paintings would get sold out. It's not that way. And it's just not fun. And I can't do it. I am showing a realist artist next month that Nick Korniloff, who owns uh, Art Miami and is a friend, called me up. He said, I, Lou, I got a favor. There's this artist, Tara Lewis, and she's basically a realist painter. And if you look at the work, it's realism, and it even can touch on pinup in certain ways, but she's great friends with, and have done 15 paintings of Brooke Shields. Could you do the show? And that show's going to open on the 4th of next month. So that's a new artist, but I'm not really representing her. I'm going to put it up, I'm going to do the show, I'm going to sell what I can for her, and then they'll go back to her. And hopefully because of that, some other gallery might pick up on it. The combination of decent realism, of pretty girls, and it's Brooke Shields, who knows? Uh, I said, okay, I'll do that for you.
1: How important are the art fairs? You mentioned Art Miami. Is that something that like an aspiring artist would should really get involved in in order for their career? Or do you see them as essential?
2: You know, back back, back in the 70s, I did FIAC in Paris and I did Basel in Switzerland. But then I didn't do an art fair for 30 years. I really hate it. I don't like it. It's not my way. Then the way I want to sell art, and the, the people that come through and what they're yelling and screaming and looking for, it's not me, and I don't want to deal with it. But Nick Corneloff, seven years ago, said, "Lou, I really want you in my art fair." I said, "Nick, you got you got a waiting list. It's five years long." He says, "If you if you apply, you'll be in by return email." So for the last six years, I've been doing Art Miami, and. Um, there's a show coming up in the armory show, which is now going to be in the Javits center is going to be in the first week in September. And they announced that they're going to have special solo shows. So I applied. I don't know why exactly, but I did. And I'm going to do a solo show of Mel Ramos, 1960s, superheroes, real pop, 6456. So I'm going to do that and show about eight paintings. Oh, cool. And I do it for an amusement. The paintings are all going to be in the millions. If I sell something, I'm happy. If I don't, whatever. I'm also in the process of giving away much of my collections. And the most important uh, museum is the Smithsonian American Art Museum. And I told them I would build for them the best collection of photorealism in any museum in the world, never to be equaled. And they picked up the first 18 paintings last month. And then there'll be more and then there'll be shows. Uh, then there are a lot of other museums I'm working with all around the country where I'm, I've, I've donated to 70 museums over the years. And I'm just going to keep on doing it because I have massive amounts of stuff.
1: Is it a good time for for painting and people's artistic expression, or would you say we're living in sort of a weak time based on the things you've observed over your
2: career? I, I think it's a weak time, and I think it's a hit or miss, and there's no way to tell who is going to come up with some kind of weird idea that some big gallery is going to pick up on and support and finance. Uh, I really don't... I mean, it's passed me by. I don't understand what's going on, how it's working, why it's working, why people are acquiring what they're acquiring. I know when I go to people's houses, they're not even looking at the stuff. They pass by and they say, oh, that's my this and that's my that. But they have no interest in it. It's not even good decoration. So I'm just very disgruntled and disappointed. All
1: right, Lou. This is great.
3: Thank you
2: so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much
0: for talking to us. Okay. Bye-bye. Hey, thank you for listening and coming along with us on this long journey. I hope you got some good takeaways from this interview. I want to let you know that we have an official Art Grind Podcast hotline now. So call us and let us know what sort of creative projects you have going on during these crazy times. Let us know what's on your mind. And we'll play it on our next episode. The number is 929-267-4830. Again, it's 929-267-4830. You can find us at artgrindpodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram. And if you feel like supporting us financially, you can easily hit that donate button on our website. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review on iTunes. That will really help us. We love all the support we get from our listeners and hope to do our best to bring you more great interviews for you. So be safe out there and stay on the grind.